I'm going to invite uh, Ken and Morgan and Michael to join me up front. Uh, we have an opportunity right now just to recognize those who are going out from Cornerstone Church in order to plant a church in Anamosa called Risen Hope Church. And so I'm going to invite Ken to kind of give some quick updates as well as Michael and Morgan. And then we'll invite up some of these good-looking people over here and pray for them. Yes, good morning, everyone. So uh, Risen Hope Church began Sunday services three going on four weeks ago now in Anamosa. We are meeting in a community room at Metal Design Systems, which is uh, there in Anamosa, just off the highway. Uh, we've got our core group. We've had several visitors coming in. Uh, we, we picked our initial time to meet at 4 p.m. on Sundays, and that's somewhat of a strategic decision. It's a good time for uh, families with young children, and as you will see, that is a good portion of our congregation right now. Um, it also affords the opportunity for others to come assist with our startup, and uh, we've already benefited from a number of people coming over to volunteer. More will be coming in the future, and we very much appreciate that. And on, along that note, I want to give a special thank you to the upper elementary Sunday school class who uh, recently did a special offering for us just to help out Risen Hope Church. So we really appreciate that. Um, I want to share just a couple of thoughts from this church planting manual that I have here. There was a, uh, a church planter named Paul writing to a new congregation in the community of Ephesus. And this is what he said to them. He said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope, risen hope, to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and in his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, risen, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. That's what Risen Hope Church is all about. Thank you. So ever since the planting of Cornerstone, the leadership has had its mind set on church planting. So way back in 2001, when Cornerstone officially started meeting, they were already thinking about this. And this has been reflected in just the modeling of the church and the programs that they do. And then back in 2015, as we were trying to look and make that transition from young teenage church to adult church, we really started seriously looking into church planting. So we started praying. We formed a church planting committee. And <laughs> and, um, and then we looked in a lot of surrounding areas. And it just seemed like God started feeding little clues that maybe Anamosa was the place to church plant. Um, so we were doing prayer um, meetings in various areas that we were thinking about church planting. And one was 
in this parking lot for an old warehouse um, that had recently been purchased by somebody who was letting us use it. And here we are a couple of years later to seem like God was giving us more and more clues that Anamosa was the place. We had several families join that lived, join Cornerstone that lived in that area. So we decided to start a church plant there. Um, about a year and a half ago, we started meeting as a small group and Then three weeks ago, 300 feet away from where we had that very same prayer meeting, we're meeting in a newer building, well, in addition to that warehouse um, with um, Risen Hope Church. Our goal with Risen Hope is to form a community among us that goes into the community of Anamosa and glorifies God by shining his light as representations of Christ by loving people who maybe aren't lovely. Um, and by connecting with people who might not see Jesus in any other context. Here I can. Yep, we're going to do this as well as we can. Um, so I've been asked about several different ways that we could possibly help, um, that you could possibly help. Okay. I have Thanks, magic guys. hands, don't I? Thank you. Um, As you can see, it takes a village, and she's not the only baby. There's many babies and young children. Um, So first of all, thank you to everyone who's helped us thus far, either with kid care or by making bags for children during the services. Um, But we do need more help because we're three weeks in, four weeks in, and we have many more weeks, and we don't want to grow weary in serving. Um, So if you feel gifted in that area, we would love assistance with um, loving on our children. Um, Another way that you could be helping is through prayer. Um, Pray specifically for our families um, that we can continue to joyfully serve um, and that we are able to be attentive to the people who are coming And then finally, if you could just be praying for open hearts for the people in Anamosa, um, that they will be open to hearing God's word. Um, Pray for open doors that we have the opportunity to share. And then also just pray that our mouths will continue to open, that we won't get discouraged from no's, that we will continue to say, hey, we know someone who's doing great things. Come see what he's doing. Um, And we would love to see you guys serve in that way. Also, thank you to the musicians who've been coming out to Anamosa to help build up our worship sets. Um, And if you are gifted in music, we would love to have you come and assist us in that way as well. Amen. I'll trade you back. So I'm going to invite the Risen Hope families up. And also, if you can, uh, the Cornerstone elders and shepherds who've served pastor present, love to have you come. We'll have you guys scoot forward. We'll put the elders behind you. We're going to pray. As people are coming up, I just want to share... Uh, one of the first times you see in the New Testament uh, of a church planting team sent out is in, is in Acts chapter 13, and it's at a church called Antioch. Listen to the Acts 13, just verses 1 through 3. It says, In the church at Antioch, uh, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, who was probably African, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, or Paul. While they were worshiping the, the Lord, they were fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. One of the things that's beautiful about this church plant in Antioch in the first century is after they prayed, 
the Lord said, send me some of your best. Send me Paul and Barnabas. Like if I'm a part of a church, normally I'm like, no, no, no. All the good people stay. We don't, those people we don't like. Why don't you guys go plant a church, preferably far away, and don't send emails? Um, but in Acts 13, they prayed, and God said, send, me, send off Paul. Send off Barnabas. Send off the encouragers, the gifted ones, the ones who love the Lord, the ones who will be faithful. And in many ways, that's what we're doing. We're sending off just some of the best, beautiful, faithful people who love Jesus. And so there's always a grieving um, when you send off people you love and who are, you know are faithful, but it's also exciting when the Holy Spirit takes people to go and share the name of Jesus. And so let's pray for these people, and um, we're thankful for them. Let's just bow. If you're standing out here, even though this is a little awkward, would you actually reach your hand out and just, you're praying a blessing on these people too. Let's pray for them. Father, we give you these dear people who we love. Uh, you love them more. Uh, you have greater plans for them than we could come up with. Lord, we grieve in some ways to lose people and send people that we love seeing every Sunday and midweek and those things. Uh, but we also know that there are people in Anamosa who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. There are, there are isolated people who don't have a single Christian friend. Uh, there's schools where kids are bullied and picked on and alone. There are marriages that are, are broken, and there's a lot of kids coming up who don't have a father figure or a mother figure or someone who loves them. And so we pray that these saints would go in the name of Jesus, to proclaim that there's salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, that there is a heavenly Father who loves his people and who's drawing them uh, to faith. We pray, God, that you would protect this church from the attacks of Satan. We pray that you would guard the unity uh, of spirit and the bond of peace. We pray that you would give the wisdom and leaders grace and encouragement. We pray... Lord, for these little children here, Lord, that they would have the privilege of growing up in a church where mom and dad walk by faith, and when they point to Jesus Christ as the object of their faith. Bless the preaching of the word of God. We pray that the singing of songs would lift the name of Jesus, the prayers would honor you, and ultimately, Lord, the disciples would be made in Anamosa for the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask that the Spirit would go with them, we give them our blessing, we give them our prayers, and we ask, Lord... Uh, let the lamp stand, shine bright in Anamosa, Iowa. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, guys. Good morning. I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. There will be a scripture reading from the 25th verse in just a moment. Let me make an obligatory reference to the Super Bowl. And now we're going to talk about important things. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. Uh, before I read you today's scripture, I want to ask you a question. And here's the question. Who, who are the one to two people in your life that you believe are hard toward God? Maybe your list is longer than one to two, but just focus maybe on one to two, two to three people. Who in your life are hard toward God? This could be, maybe it could be your brother. Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's a, a co-worker. I'm, I'm going to ask you if you're taking notes that maybe you put their initials 
in your notes. Like who who are these people that God brings to mind that they're hard toward God? I'm a, I'm gonna encourage you to, to be honest that if it's you, write your initials. Um, maybe maybe this person has become disinterested in God. Maybe they're mad at God. Uh, maybe they're caught up in a really sinful lifestyle with no hint of repentance. Who do you know who is hard toward God? They no longer have feelings for God. They're not sensitive to the reality of God. Again, if it's your own heart, just ask questions. Are are, are you cold? Are, Are you cold? Uh, and wish you were more passionate, or maybe you're cold toward God and you're actually fine with it. Who are the one to two people in your life that are hard toward God? I'm going to pray and then read today's passage. Father, uh, we come before you today to talk about matters, significant matters, matters of the heart, matters of spiritual reality, uh, matters of uh, life and death, heaven and hell. Lord, we're, we're asking God that you would be present and speaking to our hearts. We pray that our hearts would be soft. We pray that we would be sensitive to the working of the Spirit. Uh, today, if we hear God's voice, we pray that our hearts would not be hardened. Lord, we pray, God, that you would uh, be ministering even now to in- equip us and encourage us to go out and Engage, love, serve someone we know who has become disinterested or distracted or even angry at God. We pray, God, that the the, the church would be able to hear your word and respond appropriately. And we pray, God, that people who are here this morning who are searching, that that they they would be found. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word. Romans 11, verses 25, verse 25 begins by saying, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so while Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. This is God's word. So I want to give you a summary sentence of what I'm hoping to teach from this passage this morning. So if you're taking notes, this is the summary sentence. In God's Grand story of redemption. A hard heart is never the last word. 
In God's grand story of redemption, a hard heart is never the last word. So there are three pieces to this principle. That, well, look at We're going to talk about God's grand story, hard hearts, and the last word. So let's talk about God's grand story. Because notice how Paul begins this passage. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Now, Paul actually uses this word mystery a couple different times in the New Testament. But the word mystery, whenever Paul uses it, he's not saying that this is some sort of spiritual secret. Uh, the word the word mystery does not refer to like some th- some secret knowledge that you can buy from a guru for one thousand uh, dollars, nor is it some sort of spiritual ecstasy that you will have on the back end of some weekend hallucinogenic trip. The word mystery in the New Testament is something that was previously disclosed that's now been undisclosed and made known. So that's what when it talks about the mystery. It's about something that was, it was disclosed, it was hidden, but has now been revealed. And you can see this in Ephesians and in Colossians. And the mystery, when Paul uses this expression, is that, we have, that God has now revealed his salvation through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived and died and rose again. And he is now establishing his kingdom currently through the church. That's the mystery revealed. Surprise! like, that's not that mysterious. Well, it is. Because up until this mystery was revealed, most people thought God's center of salvation was only on the Jewish people. It was only on Israel. But God's mystery now has been revealed that salvation through his death and his resurrection, through this, God is now offering forgiveness to Jews and Gentiles. Pimps and prostitutes, Alabama Republicans and Vermont Democrats, to accountants and acrobats, folks from Pennsylvania, and sinners who live in Panama. The mystery has been revealed. Now, up to this point, I said people thought it was maybe confined to Israel, to the people of Abraham, to, to the Hebrews. But so look again at what he says back in 25. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. He says, so that you don't become conceited. He says, Israel, we're back to, remember? They thought it was all about Israel. But now what's going on with Israel is they are experiencing a hardening in parts until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And then it says, then all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. We'll talk about that in a second. So Paul wants you to know something, he says, so that you're not ignorant. Um, but notice the overall goal of this education is so that you're not conceited. So the news that's being revealed, the mystery that's being revealed, is to keep us very humble. It's to keep us thankful, full of gratitude. Uh, it shouldn't push you, uh, puff you up in any way. It should lead us to be meek. Uh, but what he's describing here is that there's a, a twist in the story. Uh, the mystery is this, that God is this plot twist in his story of redemption in order to take his salvation to the ends of the earth. So do you guys know the expression plot twist? Heard that before, right? A plot is simply the main storyline of a story. So a plot has, has characters and conflicts and climax and resolution. But a, a, a plot twist 
is a surprising turn in the story that's also going to bring a surprising end. And so one of the very helpful ways to kind of understand God's story is to think that of it as, as a four-act play. So God's story is in a four-act play, and a lot of people will say the four acts are this, creation, fall, restoration, consummation. So if you've ever been to a play, they often will have acts. Well, act one is creation. God created the earth, created humanity, created Adam and Eve. Uh, but very quickly after act one of God's beautiful creation, we move to act chapter two. And in act chapter two, humans rebel against God and they fall into sin. And it, the world becomes filled with death and people are subject to judgment. And then act three is God's redemption, God's redemptive plan. And then finally, Act 4, that's out in the future. It's called the consummation of all things. That's when, when Christ returns and, and one day there will be a whole new heaven and new earth. And have the, the holy city, Jerusalem, it says, will come down to earth. It's going to be amazing. But most of what we have in the, the Bible is this redemption act. And so let's explain what goes on in the redemption act and where the plot twist is. Right? So in many ways, in Act 3, in God's redemption, it begins when God comes to the patriarch Abraham. That's when that act begins. Some of you remember that act, in, this is, that's Genesis 12. Genesis 11, it, it, things are bad. I don't know, Genesis 11, sin has, has spilled out in the world. Brothers are killing brothers. Even a worldwide flood didn't root out the sin and the evil hearts of the world. Pretty soon people are trying to build this big tower to God and be like, see, we don't need God. We can get to heaven on our own. And God knocks down that, temp, uh, that tower and he sends people. He scatters them out into the world. Everyone is under a curse. Everyone is subject to isolation and brokenness. And then Act 3 begins when he comes to one of these scattered men, one of these isolated families, and he says to Abram, he says, Ah, you, I'm going to bless you. Everyone's cursed. I'm blessing you. And, and through you, we're going to bless all nations. That's how Act 3 begins. And then the redemptive story plays out where you see God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. He's blessing them. And he's blessing them despite them. So you guys started reading through the Bible this year, and you're reading Genesis, and you're like, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all seem like sinners. Turns out they are. He's saving sinners, undeserving people. He's blessing people who deserve to be cursed. And then pretty soon, you see God brings his people into Egypt, and all of a sudden, they're enslaved. You're like, oh my goodness. But then God rescues them. And he brings them out through mighty acts and mighty power. And he's blessing Israel. And pretty soon, Israel is a nation. And they're blessing other nations. And then one of the earliest plot twists in this redemptive plan is all of a sudden, the people who are supposed to be blessed get judged again. And why? Because they worship idols. They reject the God who saved them. They're judged by the Assyrians. They're judged by the Babylonians. Even when some people wander back into the land because of God's mercy, then they're subject to the Persians and then, and then the Greeks and, and then the Romans. So this whole act three of redemption seems to be going very slow. By the way, good movies always have slow plots. And God is the greatest story to ever, ever. But the plot thickens. In the first century, when the Jewish people are under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and a descendant of King David and a descendant of Abraham begins to start doing miracles in first century Israel. 
Jesus of Nazareth, he begins to speak with authority and he heals illnesses and he raises the dead. And many Jews believe that this Jesus of Nazareth is going to ride into Jerusalem and he's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to establish the Jews in power and we're going to get back to the redemptive plan that they had in mind. But instead, Jesus enters Jerusalem to be rejected by his own people who plot together with the Romans to make sure that this man is dead. And like the princess bride, dead, all dead, not half dead, dead, dead. They crucify him. Then they stab him. Then they have, I mean, these, these are expert killers, Roman soldiers. They know how to kill people. Then they bury him and they put a guard to make sure the dead, dead guy stays really dead. But three days later, he rises from the dead. And then the plot twists again. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about. Because here's the plot twist. The, the, the great promise person to defeat death and bring blessing to the world, the very people from which he comes, they're not believing in him. And that's the plot twist that Paul is dealing with now in Romans 11. Many of the Jews, they refuse to believe. It says, Paul says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full numbers, full number of Gentiles has come in. So we're still in act three of this story, this, this act of redemption. Uh, it's, it's already gone through several scenes with Abraham, Egypt, promised land, exile, Christ, church. But now we're in what's called the time of the Gentiles or the church age, a particular time in history where God is primarily bringing salvation to non-Jewish people. Now, if you've been with us in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's always saved a remnant of Jewish people. I mean, that first remnant is, you know, Peter and James and John and Paul himself and Barnabas. And, and there's a remnant yet today. In fact, if you didn't know this, one of the most exciting things is, is there have been more Jewish people of ethnic Jews who have put their faith in Messiah Jesus in the last hundred years than the 1900 years before. And all the same, in this moment of the plot twist, many Jews are still on the out. But he says, look at this text. He says, during this time, this is the end of 25, there is going to be a hardening in parts, not in whole, in parts, until when? The full number of the Gentiles is coming. But then something happens. He says, but then all of Israel is going to be saved. And then he quotes the Old Testament, which means it is written. In fact, he writes, it is written. There's a promise held out that... At some stage ahead of us, I believe, the deliverer is going to come from Zion. And he's going to deliver godliness away from, what's the word in your Bible? Jacob. The people of Israel. The people of the from the patriarch. The time is coming where he's going to turn godliness away from Jacob. And he says, this is my covenant with, what's the word in your Bible? Them. He's, covenant is promise. So he has made a promise to Jacob. And he's going to keep it. And what's going to happen? He's going to take away their sins. 
And so Paul is tying together this, this act three of redemption. And he's like, we're in this plot twist moment, the age of the Gentiles, the time of the church, where in part Israel is, is not believing. But coming down the pike, there is going to be this massive work that he's promised to Jacob. And God keeps his promises. And there's going to be many, many coming to trust in him. And God will fulfill his promises. He will remove their sins. He will restore. Now, notice that he says this is his covenant to Israel. Uh, uh, he will be faithful. He will be faithful to his people. Now, by way of application, just under this uh, first heading, is, to, is I want us to know the God's grand story of redemption. And what I mean by that is just to remember that when you pick up the Bible, this is not chicken soup for the soul. That, that's not what the Bible is. Um, uh, the Bible is not some sort of secret decoder book that will tell you what career to choose or what woman to marry. It's not primarily what the Bible is. Uh, the Bible is not four steps to being a better parent. Ultimately, the Bible is God's book about himself. It is God's book about how he saves and whom he saves and how he saves. It's the declarations of his plans for his people for all of history. The Bible then tells you and me how I can be a part of, his, part of his purposes or against his purposes. The Bible shows us God's coming victory and how either you can share in that victory or be defeated as an enemy in God's plan. That's part one. This is God's story. Know God's grand story of redemption. But with that in this passage, realize that a major aspect of that redemption is that a hard heart is never the last word. So let's move on to the second subject matter, hard hearts. Hard hearts. We saw in verse 25 that Israel, the Jewish people, were hard toward God. Um, I am one of those fathers that when their children fell down and hit their head on the sidewalk when they were little, I would say, is the sidewalk okay? Any fathers like that? Um, we just know that rocks are really hard. Cement is hard. Uh, we joke about that. It's funny because we all know that rocks and cement, they have no sensitivity. They don't feel things. They don't have any sort of uh, senses to encounter the gravity and momentum of my child's forehead. And so we say, we're trying to give them to laugh, right? But when we start actually talking about hearts, it's not funny. Because you can't have a hard heart toward God. That you've lost sensitivity toward God. Uh, that his word doesn't make you tremble anymore. That his warnings you scoff at. That his commands that you kind of change to make it work for your life. Like, that's what it means to have no sensitivity, to be hard toward God. That you're not submitted to what God says in his Bible. You would prefer to rewrite the Bible so that you don't feel bad. <laughs> that's what it means to be hard. And Paul says, we have Jewish people in the first century who are not trusting Messiah Jesus. They're hard. And so look how Paul picks up this idea in verse 28. What happens when people are hard? Again, he's talking primarily about the Jews in these verses, but they will relate to us in a moment. He says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they, and the they here are unbelieving Jews. 
So as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. The your, in that case, are the primarily believing Gentiles. So the gospel is going out. The good news of Jesus is Messiah. But the good news of Jesus is that he is also Lord and requires us to bow and kneel. As far as the gospel is concerned, those unbelieving Jews, they're enemies. But it says, for your sake. And that goes back to some stuff we said last week. But what it's saying that these hardened Jews, they rejected the gospel. And then the gospel went out to, the, to those who weren't Jews. And so it got to Gentiles that we hear about Messiah Jesus, who is not Lord of just the Jews. He's Lord of the world. And so for our sake, we get this good news. But for their sake, it says they're enemies. Let me read the rest. It says, as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Verse 3 says, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Okay, so to understand this verse, a couple things. You need to understand that God is not a stick figure. Um, What I mean by that is God is not a one-dimensional being that can only act one certain way in a single moment. I mean, frankly, we we kind of we know it's kind of insulting to make humans one-dimensional, uh, to kind of pigeonhole them or stereotype them. How much more so our Creator? Uh, just a few verses earlier in Romans chapter eleven, uh, we we read them last week that God is both kind and stern, kind and stern. And why? Because well, God's better than any heavenly Father, and any good Father will be kind and stern. God and good fathers were stern toward lying, evil, and wrongdoing. And yet kind to discipline, kind to forgive, kind to extend mercy. And so this one true God who uh, has existed for all time as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this complex being is able to do more than one thing at a certain time. He can hold together multiple purposes better than we can. Uh, fact, you actually can't multitask, you just switch tasks and it makes you less productive. Jesus, or God can actually multitask. <laughs> he, can, he can do all these things at the same time. And so in verse 28, Paul is speaking specifically of first century Jews. And he says, with regard to the gospel, they are enemies. Which means that the Jews who don't believe in Jesus are in the same boat as any person who doesn't believe in Jesus. This means that Jews, uh, they don't bow the knee, therefore they oppose God, therefore they are enemies of God. They resist God. They're in open rebellion against God. And Scripture tells us everyone who stays an enemy will one day receive an enemy's justice, what the Bible calls judgment in hell. And then it says, but at the same time, Paul says, with regard to their election, their chosenness, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. It says, for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Now, this is a striking ta- statement. I mean, we're holding together two things. He says, God's ancient commitment to Israel continues. He is still working among them. He is still working out promises for them. What God has committed to do, he will do. Now, it's vitally important to realize that 
God's irrevocable gifts and call has never meant that this is going to apply to every Jew without exception. God will be shown utterly faithful to corporate Israel, but not every single Jew will be saved. And yet at the end of the day, there will be zero doubt about God's faithfulness to Israel. So what does that have to do with our hard hearts? It means that any heart, any hard heart in the first century or the 21st century isn't the last word. It's not the end of the story. Look at Paul's comparison in verses 30 and 31. It says, just as you, so that's back to those Roman Christians that are kind of like American Christians. It says, just as you who are at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their, those Jewish disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient or that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. So again, Paul turns back to his primary Gentile audience and says, don't forget your past hardness. Don't forget your past disobedience. Remember those mornings when you woke up with a hangover of shame. Remember the guilt over your lies. Remember your past indiscretions. Remember how disobedient you were to God. But then you found mercy. Better yet, mercy found you. And so don't count out those hard-hearted Jews. Don't count out anyone who appears hard-hearted today. Keep praying for the nation of Israel. Keep praying for, the, for practicing Jews. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a man by the name of David Barron. I think we have a picture of David Barron. Uh, David Barron, he grew up in Poland. He was an Orthodox Jew. Uh, in his Judaism, he was kind of top-notch. He actually won awards for his mastery of the Hebrew Bible. And then in, early, in his early 20s, he encountered a Christian who handed him a New Testament. And he thought this was like, you know, he took it like this was bait, like red meat. Because he was going to go home, he was going to take that New Testament and prove to that other man that he was absolutely wrong. Instead, a year later, David Barron received Christian baptism. So don't ever count out the Jews or any Jew. Don't count out on anyone. Keep praying for your disobedient daughter or son. Keep praying for your hard-hearted husband. Keep praying for your annoying aunt. Keep praying for that pestering person down the hall at, walk, at work. Why? Because God is writing a grand story of redemption. And there are all sorts of plot twists with surprising villains and unexpected heroes. But no heart is too hard for God. There's still time as long as the clock is still ticking. But then there is an end. So let's talk about that. What will the end look like? What is God's last word? So recall our central principle. In God's grand story of redemption, a hard heart is never the last word. So look at Paul's last sentence in verse 32 on this subject matter. He says, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So what is God's last word? This is my sentence of what is God's last word. It's this. God's last word is maximal mercy for his people. God's last word is maximal mercy for his people. 
And I'm using the phrase maximal mercy to contrast it with universal mercy. Uh, Some people will argue that God has to forgive everybody. They'll say regardless of belief or regardless of behavior, um, God is somehow obligated to give every single person heaven and happiness. And though I do have like a level of compassion for what people are trying to do there, I think the rest of the Bible says that's wrong. And I always think it's dangerous to try to be more compassionate than God. And to think that we know better than God. Because uh, we've talked about it. You read through the book of Romans. God is not obligated to anyone. Every person is a sinner. Every person has turned from God. Everyone is rebellious toward God. And that in his mercy, he chooses to save some undeserving people. But even though God's mercy isn't universal without exception, his mercy is maximal. Right? It's breathtakingly broad and over the top. And Paul uses an image to show how maximal God's mercy is. And so he he paints this picture for us to understand it. He says, uh, before people are saved, before they experience mercy, before people are set free, it says that every person starts imprisoned. And that's an image. He uses the term bound or imprisoned. Everyone is bound in the chains of disobedience. In fact, this is one of the things that God's moral law does. The Ten Commandments expose us all as lawbreakers. We're all guilty offenders who are in the doghouse with God. We're all under judgment, and we're like all in the same jail cell. Now, you might not like it when the law does this to you. right? No one likes to feel guilty, but it turns out that's a kindness from God. It's similar to when the stern and kind doctor comes in and has to say, you have cancer or you have, you, have a, you have a nasty bacteria flowing through your body. You need to hear about the condition and the illness and the diagnosis so that you're, you're awake to the prognosis. Right? So the step one is the diagnosis. We're all bound. We're all in prison. We're all in this state of disobedience. But it's from that place that then God can extend mercy. Verse 32 says, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. It says God, this is, God shows up in the prison and he pulls his people out. That's the all in this reference. All the believing Gentiles, all the believing Jews, all his true people who follow him and who love him and seek his grace, all such people will come out of their state of spiritual enslavement and from their their bonds of disobedience. You know, Paul uses an almost identical type of expression in Galatians 3 that, that, that kind of expounds on what's going on in verse 32. Listen to Galatians 3. 22 and 23, and see, he's using the same imagery. He says, Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that was what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Now notice that the, the, one of the recurring words is the law bound us. The law held us fast. Jesus came and so those who believe and those who have faith can be saved. Now some of you today 
do you, you probably remember. Do you guys remember feel, that feeling of being locked up before faith? Do you remember, like, for some people, it's days, weeks, months, even years where they experience shame and guilt before God. Maybe up to a certain point, you didn't think about God at all. You were stealing, cheating, lying. It didn't feel an ounce of remorse. But then there's that moment where the guilt comes and it feels like an elephant weighing on your soul. And, and some people try to drink the guilt away, or maybe you try to do a bunch of good deeds. You try to be a better friend. You try to read your Bible. You try to go to church. You try to be nice to your mother-in-law. But nothing you could do took away that guilt. That's what it means, bound in disobedience. But then you began to understand that only Jesus can set you free. You heard God coming to earth as a man to live for you and die for you. You began to see that Jesus' primary mission was about death for sinners. He didn't come to just bless babies and walk on water. No, Jesus came to seek and to save. That was lost. He came for all those bound in disobedience to make them recipients of mercy. And then you got it. You can't work for mercy. You can't earn forgiveness. The only thing you can do is cry out in prayer, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I was talking to a godly woman this week, and she said her favorite story in the Bible. Uh, you lean in. If someone who's read the Bible for a long time, loved Jesus, for, well, what is your favorite story in the Bible? Her favorite story in the Bible is after Peter had denied Christ, and he went back to his day job of fishing. He says, I love it when Jesus showed up and he made Peter some fish. He said, eat this. Come back to me. That's coming out of the disobedience, coming out of the guilt, coming out of the shame. Sit with Jesus and eat some fish. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And oh, and oh how sweet it is to come to this realization. Free, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I am free. Remember, in God's story of redemption, a hard heart is never the last word. A number of years, years ago, there was a mom, and she had a son, and she prayed for her son decade after decade. But all that she saw was a life of selfishness and sin. She watched her son steal things just for the sake of stealing. Stealing. As he grew up, he became a slave to his passions. He had a child out of wedlock, but he refused to marry the woman. Uh, he relied on his wilt, wit, and he relied on his wealth, rather than do any good for anyone else. And his mom just kept praying. And then he experienced an ounce of guilt. You know what he did? He ran off to some weird religious cult. I mean, can you imagine? I've been praying. He feels guilt. And he runs off to some like crazy religious cult. And his mom kept praying. And finally, at 31 years of age, a man that is now known as St. Augustine of Hippo, he believed in Jesus Christ and he received baptism. And who was there at his baptism? His mom, Monica. She prayed and prayed. And the hard heart for her son did not have the last word. Let me just give three thoughts and then we'll move to take the Lord's Supper. Because of God's grand story of redemption, a hard heart is never the last word. You might need to hear that today personally. That you have to give your hard heart over to God and say, change my heart, O God. 
Take out my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh. You need that today. Others of you need to hear that today because it's to encourage you to keep praying with faith for that person in your life who's still hard. Because you've given up faith. Maybe it's even become a joke in your household. Well, they don't believe. But you're going to keep praying. But my invitation for all of us, for you and for me, is that this leads us to praise God for his breathtaking mercy. It is over the top. It is so undeserved. There is no God who can forgive, uh, but the God who does forgive. And so we come to him again and we say, thank you, God, for your sweet mercy. Let me pray. Father, we uh, thank you for time in your word. And these are, these, are, these are grave things and yet glorious things. And so we pray that our hearts and minds would be submitted to your word. Produce in us faith where there has been faithfulness. Give us hope where there has been hopelessness. Give us love where there has been lovelessness. We need your help. For those who maybe today is the day of their salvation, they're ready to yield and give up their broken hard heart and hand it to Jesus. And pray for those of us who know many people who are still hard toward the good news of Jesus, that you would change their hearts and and keep us engaged to keep loving them, serving them, and, and telling them the good news about Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.